Der deutsche Spargelkult müsse enden. Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD Deutschland ist eine Perle der deutschen Industrie. Und ich glaube, das kann man nicht sagen. Ich weiß, wie viel Liebe dahinter steckt. Wenn Glühweinstände aufgebaut werden, wenn Waffen. Spargelweltmeister ist China, denn die bauen sich. Hey, this is Ted. Welcome to Spaßbremse. We've got something a little different for you today. It's an episode with an interview with Gunther Feininger. For those of you who don't know, Gunther is an Austrian economist and economic development consultant who has risen to prominence recently for his online commentary on foreign affairs, most notably through selfies taken in various countries. He posts these on Twitter alongside demands and suggestions that he makes towards the leaders of these countries and other prominent international figures. We'll link to some examples in the show notes, but imagine things like him in front of a train station smiling with a thumbs up to ask for more infrastructure funding, him in front of a genocide memorial frowning with a thumbs down to condemn it, or just in front of a famous building with any sort of commentary on that country's politics, things like that. Gunther has expressed a huge range of interesting opinions through these means and also on his YouTube channel. So I wanted to speak with him directly to outline his worldview in greater detail. Note that, of course, we don't agree as a podcast with Mr. Fehlinger on everything. His views on building train infrastructure or allowing more immigration, I think, are good. I'm less convinced that dismantling China would be a good idea or that the Catalonian independence and Irish unification movements should be totally disregarded. So I don't want to give off the idea that, you know, I'm totally signing off on everything that we discuss in this interview, but I also didn't want to structure it in a kind of in a tired debate format since I find that a bit tedious. Instead, I wanted to have on one of the most entertaining creative and outspoken thinkers about what a new international order could look like and to give him a chance to share his thoughts in what was actually a very engaging and fun conversation. If you don't already know Gunter, I definitely recommend listening to our friends Corner Spatey. They did a whole little profile of him, which Gunter had actually listened to himself mentions on the pod and really enjoyed. So we'll link to that. Before we get to the interview, um, just wanted to say thanks to everyone who supports and subscribes. The episode scheduled now was supposed to be a premium one, but given the content and guest, I'd have felt remiss not releasing it to everybody. So an extra thanks to the Patreon subscribers who made it possible for everyone out there to listen to this. And if you don't support us already, then please consider doing so through the link in the show notes. Also, just to reiterate, we have a live show at noon in Berlin on October 14th. Link for tickets in the show notes and more information soon. And with that, on to the interview with Gunter Fellinger. Hey everyone, and welcome to Spaßbremse. I'm joined here by a guest that I'm really excited to have on. Um, you probably have seen him online if you're on Twitter or YouTube. Um, widespread commentator on international affairs. It's Gunter Fellinger, who's an Austrian economist, co-host of the podcast Pax Europeana, and like I said, a, a widespread commentator on international affairs, primarily through his Twitter account, um, known as, as one of the most outspoken voices for EU expansion and NATO expansion, um, and uh, just, yeah, wi widespread uh, man about the world commenting on uh, commenting on international politics through uh, various selfies and famous monuments. And so it's great to have the man himself here that uh, we've seen, seen your face in so many photos on Twitter next to famous sites. It's great to have you here on Zoom. So Mr. Fehlinger, thanks for joining. Thanks for the invitation. And so, as I said, you know, I think you're best known now as a commentator on geopolitical affairs and an advocate for the sort of expansion of the the western and and us led global order that you would like to see um you would like to see actually strengthen and expand itself including your native austria joining nato but your background is one 
in economics, um, and you also head the organization Europeans for Tax Reform, which has a more, I think it would be fair to say, a sort of uh, a more Reagan or Thatcher kind of uh, more economic-led um, vision of the world. And so I'm curious how you moved and transitioned from this focus on kind of economics first, kind of more, you know, smaller state, you know, shrink the government type of attitude and how you transitioned from that to this predominant interest in geopolitics. And and what's the link between your economics background and your current interest in shaping a new world order? Yes, thanks a lot for inviting me. You know, the big turning point was the Crimea invasion of Russia in 2014, because before that, the world was more or less okay. Uh, we anyhow have enlarged NATO and the EU, and we were enlarging OECD, and we were enlarging all our systems. And the period I was active, you know, because I was in the 90s, uh, in the 90s, it was Austria was before the Cold War border. And then I was suddenly having all these new countries around and all these opportunities. So I was traveling as a student back then, as a student representative, a student leader in Austria, in all the countries in Eastern Europe and uh, telling basically the same I do today. <laughs> you know, join NATO, join the European Union, adopt the euro and join the OECD and let's be part of the free world. Yeah, That's the logic. Yeah. And I have made that all the time. But at this years, especially in the 2000s, when I worked in the European Parliament as advisor, it was mostly at the time, you know, for economic reform, because we had to prepare the Big Bang enlargement of 2004 with the 10 countries and now 13 countries. And then I was also practically working in the Western Balkans, also preparing these countries to do the same. So everything was online, everything was on track, and everything was basically just about economic implementation making lower taxes and reforming the economies to get them ready to be part of the internal market of EU and NATO. There was little doubt that we will do that. And it was very clear. Everything changed with 2014. And I have also adopted to the change. And then everything changed dramatically in 2022. <laughs> because, you know, the things have changed. And Russia has declared war against us uh, basically in 14. And then in 22, they did it. And so I changed as well. And I said uh, in my um, awakening moment, if you want to put it in this English terms, was uh, basically uh, very much in 2017 when I was working in Ukraine again on economic development. But I ran against the absolute wall of resistance of the Europeans that they don't want Ukraine in NATO and EU. And I said, you know, something is wrong. <laughs> you know, we are the EU and we don't want the EU, a European country to join us. Something is here wrong. And then I started to write this Pax Europeana. I shifted to ge geostrategic uh, alignment and discussions. And I said, you know, the one thing we have to do is to get Ukraine in NATO and the EU and obviously everybody else. And we have to really be more competitive and, you know, more kind of, uh, you know, we, we cannot let the Chinese and the Russians impose their world order on us. <laughs> it's not the way the things can go. And, you know, we have to be more competitive. And then I learned how to use Twitter. I had some help in order to be also in this English speaking world a little bit more. Some people make fun of me. <laughs> some people joke about me. It's fine. And, but, you know, I get my point a bit across. And we definitely get Ukraine in NATO and the EU. You will see that. Yeah. People say people make a joke sometimes <laughs> in English. They call it the, the posting to policy <laughs> pipeline. And it seems like that's the, that's the path you're on. So, um, you know, and, and, I don't have I don't have so much big access to the CNN so, and Fox media of the world. So I do new uh, I do. I use the nuclear weapon of the individual uh, person and I go on Twitter and YouTube. That's great. And I think. I mean, one of the reasons why your journey interested me, I mean, we've had some other people come on the podcast, you know, from more of a, sometimes a left perspective, someone like Quinn Slobody, and he talked about how the, um, you know, the market needs to be kind of um, protected by the state, right? And he uses the term encased. And I find your journey interesting because it seems like, you know, you started out with this kind of um, advocating for, for free markets and economic reform. And basically later you realize that that can't happen in the absence of a strong state and an actual military alliance system that will allow for the kind of economic structures that you that you support. That's so, absolutely true. Yeah. You know, we need yeah, the strong state. That's always a 
you know, a kind of, you can debate about the terms, but well, you need a strong de uh, defense alliance. Yeah, You cannot let your enemies uh, subjugate you. <laughs> it's not how gonna way work. Yeah? So we need a state which is able to protect freedom. And that must be externally NATO. And internally, it must be also a strong rule of law system, which is uh, implementing freedom. I'm still for low taxes. Don't get me wrong. I'm very much for the free market, but based on reasonable regulation and the implementation of European style regulation, ultimately globally. It's very shocking for the British <laughs> and for the, for the Americans, but via the OECD and via our free trade agreements, I'm for the spread of uh, global regulatory alignment uh, according to European standards. And so, as I said, you know, you um, you frequently advocate, you know, not just sort of commentary on current affairs, but actually where you would like to see the world going in the future. Often this takes the form of uh, hashtags, which, which I enjoy quite a lot, where you uh, do hashtag <laughs> X, uh, you know, fill in the blank country. So there's been X Russia, X China, X Saudi Arabia. And, and one of the things, too, I appreciate, even though you're, you're generally on the, uh, you know, the kind of U.S. Western side of it is, is you don't pick favorites too much in terms of uh, the countries that might need to get broken up. So you'll you'll target some U.S. allies, too, as well for, for countries that that you might think should be should be reconfigured. So um, you should pick your allies wiser. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm sure you have a whole list of, ex of everything you'd like to see in the world change. But. For now, could you pick like maybe three big ones, say by 2030, like what what in the global order would you most like to see changed okay. by, say, we roughly have, the year 2030? We have four enemies in the world, the West, yeah. also the Americans, and we are basically the same. I put the flags here for this podcast. You know, we are the same. We are the free world. Yeah, America and European Union and some of the smaller allies around. We are the free world. Yeah. Who are the enemies? Russia, China, Iran, Syria. These are the four that are the ones that count the rest. You know, there's some, so they have some smaller friends like uh, Eritrea, Cuba, but they uh, Angola, but they really don't matter. Sorry, my flag was dropping. Yeah. <laughs> so the situation is like this. These four countries are the most dangerous and the most dangerous of all is of course, Russia, Russia. And you know, there uh, I see already the whole support for Ukraine, which the Americans and the British are giving is again uh, determining uh, that Russia should stay a united country. What's your business <laughs> in having a united Russia? <laughs> I don't understand that. Yeah. You know, it's much better. And that's right. I'm advocating that since uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union, which uh, many people in America and in, uh, in the UK didn't like. I liked it very much because I lived in the shadow of the Cold War. The Soviet Union was going to, I was dominating until Czechoslovakia. So it was terrible for us. <laughs> so it was much better without the Soviet Union. It was much better without Yugoslavia. And I'm an expert, you know, professionally. I work in all countries um, besides Serbia, uh, but I worked as well in Serbia for some months under Cincic and the Times. But I'm a real expert day-to-day uh, uh, -day work yeah, for the reality of Kosovo, Bosnia, Montenegro, Macedonia, and they're all much better than they are perceived in the English-speaking world. Because you guys have an idea, oh, it's very terrible what happened in uh, the Balkans. Yes, it was terrible wars, but the reality is that the outcome is much better. You know, we have seven independent countries which are thriving. Even Serbia is doing economically quite well, yeah? So this is the role model, I say provocatively, because obviously then, oh no, don't do the Balkans. Yeah. But the future of Russia, which is 41 new states, <laughs> it's much better for the people there and much better for everybody else. <laughs> so we have to break this uh, kind of monopoly of state unity because you in the UK, I don't know if you're British or American, but you love your nation, fine. You love the unity of your nation and you think everybody else should love the unity of their nation as well, even when it's a total disaster state. Yeah, I mean, it's there. Um, I am from the US, but yeah, not 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 wanting to, to, to be a spokesperson for the country, of course. But I mean, I it's... Here. <laughs> yeah, I see, I, see the flag. I see the flag there. That's Sorry, good. Ukraine has... Yeah, oh, Ukraine fell down a little bit. Uh -oh. <laughs> I will fix it in a moment. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I find that interesting. So, yeah, because, you know, you alluded to it, right? And the, the obvious criticism when people uh, sort of, you know, advocate for Russia to be broken up, sometimes using like decolonial language, the, the obvious critique yeah. there is, well, look what happens when 
big empires fall apart. You know, it's a mess and it's, and it's very violent. And so you aren't really discounting that possibility, right? You say that's, you know, that, that very may well happen, but it's a price willing to pay. Is that your line of argument? Absolutely. And I'm arguing very much in favor of the breakup of Russia. Not that we go, you know, not the military breakup like we go and we occupy it. No, no, no. But, you know, they, when they come and for example, the Chechenians say independence, yeah. Then you in the America should say yes. Yes. Remind your own history. Nobody wanted to recognize you in the 240 years ago. <laughs> and you didn't want to recognize Chechnya in 94 when they got their freedom. They were fighting for it. And they were a free state in 94 to 99 until Putin reconquered them brutally and killed so many thousands of people there by a reconquest of Chechnya in 99 and getting power to it. And, you know, that's a complete unfairness. And we should be ready to know that Buratio wants to be free and uh, Chechnya and Ingushetia and uh, Siberia. And that's a perfectly legitimate position. And of course, it will be complicated, you know, but the world is a complicated process. And you had no qualms yeah, <laughs> to support the dissolution, dismantling of the Austrian Empire, of the Ottoman Empire, of the Russian Empire of the German Empire, of the British Empire, I would like to remind you, of the French Empire, <laughs> because America was actively involved in the dismantlement of all the colonial empires of Europe. Yeah? And now in the case of the Russian Empire, you say, no, 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 it's very good. We have the guy in the Kremlin we can make business with, and it's really cool, and he can do whatever he wants with his population. He can uh, carpet bomb their own Grozny, but it's fine for us because we have energy business, we continue to buy nuclear power from him. And basically, it's really cool if he controls the nukes, yeah, <laughs> because we know how to handle him. And that's fine. yeah. <laughs> but that's completely real politic. And I'm not a politician, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, in charge. I understand Jack Sullivan has to manage the world <laughs> from the White House and he is in charge. I understand that. But I attack him on a moral basis that it's wrong <laughs> and it's legitimate to do that. No, I can, I definitely can understand the, you know, the argument for um, independence if, if a certain group of people seeks that. Um, yeah, I guess the, the issue to me then is sort of a matter of like where you draw the line, right? And so I think um, I've seen you post, you know, you're in opposition to say independence in like Catalan. And so I'm, I'm just curious, like, wh where do you, what's your sort of metric for which um, nope. national independence movements you think are valid and, and should be accepted and pursued and which ones are you, you sort of see as you know, backwards looking or, or reactionary or yes. undesirable. No, and there's a huge cost in becoming independent, a huge cost and a huge risk. Yeah? So a man uh, in life, in blood, in treasure, it's very, very difficult to become independent. All the new countries from the American Revolution onwards, it was always with war, with huge, uh, you call it transactional costs in becoming independent. So this is only justified yeah, in case of uh, real suppression and serious opportunity to be independent. Yeah. So it is very, very um, complicated to encourage uh, people towards independence when there is no realistic chance to do that. Yeah. So, and also no reason to do it. For example, Catalan independence, I call a so-called luxury independence movement. Yeah. Because Catalan people are living in NATO, ally Spain. So they have external security. They're living in EU member Spain. <laughs> they have uh, all the uh, rights, which I have. Uh, and we have all the rights in the European Union. Nobody in Catalonia is suppressed. So then it's a question of federal arrangement inside Spain, you know, about autonomy, language, culture, rights, and historic. You know, there's 1,000 things which need to be fought for, but on a peaceful basis and not in form of independent Catalo Catalonia because that's ultimately a kind of extreme left-wing or extreme right-wing or Russian-funded kind of fallacy, because there is no kind of subjective reason. And there is also no scenario where this could be somehow justified towards the huge transaction cost of the Spanish people living in Catalonia, of the Catalonians living outside of Catalonia, and the whole would be a completely mess. And I will never argue in favor of that. I'm also opposing Irish unification, Scottish independence, this is all complete, you know, fantasy, you know, this is has to be solved inside the European Union. The UK has to return to the European Union. Ireland has to join NATO. These are the ways to do it. 
I'm opposing any ideas of a free federal country to be somehow separated by force or internally as well by violence, because this is not the way to do things. It's not democratic. And it's uh, basically a luxury form of uh, secessionism, which often is used by our enemies, which I compose, uh, oppose completely. But what I say <laughs> in the, since 2022, I say, of course, in the case of Russia, which is attacking other countries, uh, Ukraine, which is spreading the hate and the money uh, towards all these movements in the world, which are evil and which is finding, uh, funding civil wars worldwide and is internally not, uh, uh, autocracy. It is suppressing their own people. There is even in Russia a debate about how bad uh, Chechenia is run by this Kadyrov. Uh, he sends his young child uh, to beat up prisoners and videos about it. Yeah, I mean, this is far from, you know, there's, there's no justification, there's no legitimacy. And that's always the big issue. Why should the Russians rule Chechnya if they impose a regime which is beyond any kind of human standards? So that's the point. Yeah, We always have to evaluate. And my little uh, tour de force in the whole world to discuss how nice it is to be dismantled. I'm actually not in favor of uh, active dismantlement of uh, countries like Brazil or Indonesia or India. But I'm just, you know, very angry that they align with uh, Russia in BRICS when Russia is committing a genocidal war about dismantling Ukraine, doing that. And then leaders of so-called democracies like Brazil and India, they go and meet with Putin and say, yeah, we have to understand him. Yeah? Okay, then if we have to understand Putin, then let's understand me and I will argue for the dismantlement of India. And I found out in India, there is a lot of people millions of people which are very unhappy with the present day arrangement in India, like the Sikhs. I'm now very popular in the, I didn't know a lot about the Sikhs, but you know, the Sikhs follow me on Twitter yeah, in, in droves. And in Brazil, there are a lot of people which are unhappy with this socialist government of Mr. Lula and they follow me as well. Fine. I'm not actively uh, uh, promoting, you know, like, uh, I don't, I think it's better to have a federalization of India and of Brazil, like the United States of America, the United States of Brazil, the United States of India. It's much better economically, politically, and it's a better way to do it in these countries. If I'm a, like a impetus for them to discuss about federalization, that's very good. I hope nobody abuses me and says I'm a, like a, you know, I don't want to be the, the casus belli for sick independence war and a lot of course, yeah, I'm not advocating for that. But in the case of the hostile countries, yeah, the hostile countries, I repeat, Syria, Assad is a mass murderer. <laughs> he shouldn't be in power. He has no legitimacy to run this country. He should be removed and we should break up this country. The same is true as well for Iran, which is an absolute disaster country to their own people and to the neighbors. And of course, now supplying as well Russia with rockets. And the same ultimately, whereas I'm a little bit more careful in the case of China, it's also possible to have federalization of China as the outcome. Uh, where there should be more minority rights in the uh, United States of China. But ultimately, what China has done in the war now, and that's why I feel also justified to call for ex-China to provoke them, it is totally unacceptable to be an ally of Russia in this war and to supply them economically, to buy their things and to, to supply them with high tech. And, you know, then, you know, they are like the allies of our enemy. And let's discuss ex-China. Why not? The people in Xinjiang were very happy with me and they follow me all on Twitter and I'm happy with that. And, and that's my line of reasoning. I know it's a bit complicated. I know it takes a little bit, you know, of intellectual effort to draw the line. You can always accuse me of like, I'm biased for the West, yeah, which I am basically because we are the better system. And, but um, we are the advocates of freedom and we have more or less established free systems. But, <laughs> but I'm feeling legitimized uh, to discuss uh, the dissolution of these uh, empires. And uh, maybe some of them will fall. First of all, Russia, which I think confidently will fall already next year. And you will be very surprised. And you will invite me again for the podcast. And you will ask me, Günther, why? <laughs> we'll have you on for a victory lap podcast, if, if that does happen. Absolutely. 
Um, and of course, you know, as you said, big, big advocate for the West. I'm seeing, uh, you know, this is an audio format, but for um, for people who can't see, you've got a, a big NATO flag, an EU flag, US flag and a Ukraine flag. So um, I don't think anyone would would mistake which side you're on. Uh, but I'm thanks moving a little closer to home because this is another big cause of yours is getting Austria itself to join NATO. I mean, you're here joining from yes. Vienna currently. Um, Austria, of course, not in NATO. How is that effort going? Because the latest polling I've seen, I mean, a lot of Austrians still are not terribly in favor of joining NATO. So how is the political effort to try to do that going and what kind of resistance do you face or what's the sort of pushback you might get from the Austrian populace on that issue? Look, I have to explain that uh, this is some of the leftovers of the Cold War because uh, the Allied forces and the Soviet Union, they met in the middle of Europe in 45 and Germany was divided, Austria was divided as well in four occupation zones. And then later was the question, what to do with this divided Germany, what to do with this divided Austria? There were two options, Western integration and Eastern integration, which happened in Germany, going to NATO or to Warsaw Pact, or the Austrian variation where the four allied um, occupiers, uh, liberators, occupiers, whatever you want to call them, they uh, decide uh, for neutralization of that uh, small country. And because Austria really doesn't matter for world history, and they decided, let's test the case, let's do neutralization, because for the Soviet Union, it was not a huge concession because they just moved the troops towards Czechoslovakia and uh, you uh, can be a tank commander in Bratislava and you are in the afternoon in Vienna back again. Uh, so we were always living under the Czechoslovak Soviet occupation forces uh, shadow. They could easily uh, dominate us. And politically, the Soviet Union has never left because the embassy was always reminding our politicians, by the way, the tanks are there. By the way, we can come back. And by the way, we just went voluntarily and you better do what we say. And that was also the attitude of the Americans, a little bit of nicer, charming attitude. But they reminded everybody in Austria, please don't go extreme and do everything the Soviets say, because we are the ones who have to come back from Bavaria or from Aviano to protect you in case it's needed. And we promise you to do that informally. Your American compatriots have said that to the Austrians. Informally, we come back if it's needed. And they left some weapon stashes and they left some uh, some secret organization, which is more famous in Italy, the Gladiator, and so on and so on. So then already we had a debate in 55. Is that a good idea? Because the leading politicians, they knew when you do that neutral thing, then with time, it will be like a myth here. And the question about Austrian identity has always been an issue, how different we are from Germany. And so our politicians after 55 decided this neutral thing is the perfect thing to tell the world that we are the nicer Germans, we are the Austrians, we are neutral. <laughs> and so the whole identity of Austria, similar to you might be more acquainted with the Irish case. The Irish also think that they are morally superior to Americans and to British because they are neutral, <laughs> because they are not part of this American warmongering NATO thing. And this kind of mentality has also somehow developed in Austria. And now 80% of the Austrians think the reason why we are good people and rich, because we are one of the richest countries in the world, is because we are neutral. <laughs> and so and then to have people like me who live 20 years in Ukraine and Kosovo, Albania, who love NATO and who understand the world, I think better than the Austrians who lived here all the time. I understand we are living under the American nuclear umbrella. We are part of the American world if we want it or not because basically it's an indivisible thing, the nuclear umbrella. You defend us from the Soviets and the Russians, and you have allowed us to be part of that Western world. And that's why we are rich, because of the EU, because of America, because of this market access and the protection we enjoy for free. Now I say in the framework of Sweden, Finland joining, we could also join and we could slip in. But then comes another thing. And this is the huge economic interdependence with Russia and Austria, because in the year 68, uh, because the Soviet Union was very poor country in the Second World War, 
Basically, the Americans have funded all the Second World War for the Soviets and give them all the technology, equipment and material. But then the Soviets had a lot of um, pay, uh, time to develop the Siberia. And in Siberia, there is all the treasures of the world. Then it took them about 20 years to build the pipelines towards Europe. And the most important pipeline is going to Vienna again, because it was so close to Slovakia. So they had basically a big hub of distribution of gas built uh, north of Vienna. And this is a most important strategic asset of the Russians uh, still today, because here they can bring directly from Siberia all the gas towards the north of Austria. And then you distribute it to Italy and to Germany, where the all rich consumers and industries are. And this gas transforms into foreign exchanges. Yeah? So the whole reason why the Soviet Union was so successful to defeat you in Vietnam and in Angola and, you know, to fight the war in Afghanistan was because they had all these German dollars. So it was converted in dollars, ultimately, all the money of the German and Austrian and Italian consumers via Austria. And this uh, transformation of uh, Siberian gas in American dollars in Vienna led to a lot of economic interest developing because they have also developed not just gas intermediaries, but also financial intermediaries. And much of the money was then parked in Vienna. <laughs> and they had built the infrastructure to uh, buy things, whatever they wanted, via Vienna. So Vienna became very important in the Soviet times. And it somehow kept this position in the resurgent kind of Putin world. And now Vienna has uh, 26 billion official FDI of Russia and has, of course, uh, this big role now in the circumvention of sanctions. And Vienna still has a lot of people who are used uh, to work for Russian financial interests. Yeah? And this is very hard to overcome. And this mixture of financial uh, dependency with Russia, we are the, together with Hungary and Slovakia, which are similar countries. And uh, these three countries uh, still are the ones which are almost to 80% dependent on Russian gas today, even one and a half year of war. And we have this big, big um, mixture of uh, neutral identity and uh, Russian financial interest. And that's why it's very difficult to convince the Austrians uh, to join NATO. But I will succeed <laughs> and <laughs> with so, your help. <laughs> and so just like a, a quick follow up on that. I mean, you outline how Austria has done fairly well economically from its positioning sort of you know, in between East and West and still maintaining some of that neutral status. Would you say that, you know, by fully joining NATO, kind of, you know, kicking uh, kicking all the economic ties with Russia, like Austria would face a pretty big economic hit from that. And that's a cost that you would be willing to pay. I'm curious here with your background as an economist, is this a case where like politics trumps economics and you would say, you know, I, I will lose this much economic output look, and, and prosperity for the kind of geopolitical alignment that I'm in favor of? Look, the public good is always ahead of the economic self-interest. Yeah, ultimately, politics always trumps economics. Yeah, because otherwise you are a Marxist when you think in economic determinism and all these things. I'm a capitalist uh, theoretical person. I believe in that ideology of freedom of people, which have to be freedom of enterprise, but they must be protected. Yeah, they must be secure. And there must be the primacy of politics, obviously. So here is a case where classically, of course, it's an economic problem for us, but we are just a small country with 9 million people. So what you need to do is basically uh, to uh, align with the rest of the European Union and with America, because you have enough natural gas in America for us, <laughs> because we you are supplying now Germany. Germany is very big country, 10 times bigger than Austria. So you have done that for Germany. You can do that for us. And we have a supply contract, which is a 7 billion euro supply contract with Russia via our state owned industry. It's 30% state owned and uh, some of it is stock exchange listed. It's called OMV. And this contract, uh, Mr. Kurz, the famous Austrian shooting star has concluded in 2018 um, with the OMV and the Gazprom. And it's another 20 years. So we need to break that con contract. It's very expensive. The Russians will be really very angry for that one, but it will be anyhow broken because in the end of 2024, the transit contract of gas between Ukraine and Russia will run out. And the Ukrainians have said under no possible circumstances, they will renew that contract. And so by the end of 2024, Austria will have no gas because it's physically impossible to bring gas from Russia with not to cut, uh, going by Ukraine. Yeah. You can bring some from the Balkans, uh, 
uh, indirectly via Turkey, but even there, Bulgaria is in between. So I hope they will also uh, be very uh, careful. And they are now with a pro-American coalition as well. So I say we need, of course, to supply our people, but our storages are full at the moment. We have uh, paid very expensively last year, a lot of gas. And then as well, America, please help us. Yeah. Help us and back us up. Yeah. You do it for Germany and for Italy. And now Austria is just an additional and for Hungary and for Slovakia. These are the more dependent countries. We are the poorer countries in the shadow of Germany, but they are the lines from the North Sea ports to Germany via Austria and to, to Hungary. We can reverse flow all these things. And then we must be sure that uh, during 2024, all the technical preparations are done. And of course, it will be more expensive. But, you know, we're talking not hundreds of billions because we're talking seven billions we are paying to Russia every year now in this year. And if we pay then maybe 50 uh, percent more. So we are talking about three and a half billion. And we are a country of 440 billion GDP or 500 soon. And so we can afford another billion. In Corona, we spent 26 billion <laughs> euros. So if it is energy crisis to come and the transition costs us another three billion euro or five billion euro, you know, we are a really very rich country. And, you know, we can make some debts. And uh, then anyhow, we are in highly inflationary times and our consumers pay already very high energy prices. And uh, so we have also promised to get rid of gas anyhow by 2040. So let's get rid of Russian gas now. <laughs> let's replace this temporarily with American gas. And then let's build more nuclear thing, which I think would also be a wonderful thing. But uh, that will also not happen, but simply make a European joint market of energy like America has it, because we still are very divided in all these things. And we can have one EU uh, common gas purchase uh, person uh, agency in Brussels in 2024. We can have one person to uh, basically make a wartime economy for econo uh, for the energy market, which we should because we are in an energy war with Russia and then we can survive just fine and we will prosper actually much better without Russian gas because Russian gas is used to corrupt our politicians. Don't forget that aspect <laughs> because what they're doing is 1% of the revenue is always used for political kind of maneuvering in the country, meaning corruption. So the media is bought, the politicians are bought, the civil society is bought because Russia makes great business and they are simple like a businessman. 1% goes into the German politics, see the AfD and the Linke, they are one by one on that one. And in Austria, the rise of the populists, or you can be sure it's also in connection with this energy kickbacking. So no Russian gas, no money for this kind of bullocks uh, politics of the of the extremism and that's much better for us so we will emerge much stronger out of this whole crisis and you will see europe will be just fine thanks to american help music to the ears of the lng providers from america so yeah so, so say... they make good business fine because they were smart yeah. enough 20 years ago to invest in that sector and we have not been and so, so sort of going back to your kind of ideal world here with, you know, obviously wanting Austria in NATO um, yes. and then also wanting Russia broken up. We can kind of link to the map that you've supported of, of Russia breaking up into, into various um, you know, smaller countries. How far east would you want NATO to go if Russia was then comprised of a, a series of independent states? Because you advocate NATO, uh, sorry, Ukraine joining NATO. And so let's say then, you know, the Russian Federation is now broken up. Look, Would you want yeah. any of those countries to become part of NATO eventually if they sort of, you know, eventually is the, yeah. eventually is the big word here, because, you know, first of all, we have to talk about the real world. That means Ukraine in NATO. It means also potentially it's, uh, of course, Georgia in NATO, Moldova in NATO, which is still a neutral country. Also, we have to talk about the Southern Caucasus, very important. Here is, of course, Azerbaijan, which more or less is already indirectly somehow maneuvering in uh, the Turkish shadow and in the Israeli shadow. And then also the question I have also called for Armenia to join NATO, which would be the best to have all the free countries of the Southern Caucasus in NATO. And then, of course, my most important, my emotional campaign for Kosovo to be in NATO, for Bosnia in NATO, because these are the two countries we have supported for independence uh, 25 years ago and defended. 
and in, of course they should be. And one day after I turn to the West, also Serbia. And this is, uh, you know, the real world. And it will also one day happen that Serbia will turn to the West and then it's time for NATO and we will have peace. For the countries of ex-Russia, if Russia breaks up, which is a hypothetical, which I call for, I hope for, I pray for, it would be much better. And then, of course, we will see how many countries ultimately will be. Uh, will there be a strong rump Russia like a Serbia of Yugoslavia? Will there be many smaller countries in European Russia? And that's something to be decided for. And that will be something we will see. Um, open, you know, we are then in a situation like in 1991, when the Soviet Union broke up. And the first countries of the Soviet Union to join NATO was then in 2004 with Estonia and with uh, Latvia and these three countries, which were the first ones to join. So the question is, how will Russia break up in which kind of countries? And then in a period from that moment, let's say in 2025, plus 15 years on, we are talking about uh, 2040, when these countries have gone through a serious uh, transformation, and then we can talk about it. Yeah, And I'm very happy to sit next to, in the European Parliament in January, in the conference of ECR, I was sitting next to a guy from St. Petersburg, uh, from the opposition, who is for independent St. Petersburg, and he talked next to me here. I couldn't believe my, you know, <laughs> my facial expression had to be kept. He said, I'm from free St. Petersburg, and I want to join NATO and the EU. Okay, <laughs> of course I'm in favor, but you know, because it's a serious podcast here, I want to say that's a hypothetical for the long-term future of 2040s beyond, because after a breakup, the countries have to go for transformation and they have to be stable democracies and they have to go for a longer way. But it's absolutely possible to go for many of the countries in European Russia when they are stable democracies to also join NATO and the European Union in the future in this 20 years framework, that's a possibility, which I would be very happy about and come back to your podcast to celebrate. But, you know, it's not that this is happening at the moment right here, right now. But I don't think that Siberia or Kamchatka or, you know, the, um, there would be a different security arrangements because countries uh, from uh, the Asian part of Russia would be more, their future would be probably similar to the Central Asian republics like Kazakhstan, what you call the Stan countries in uh, English, and uh, this kind of, uh, but it's theoretically very easily to imagine that there will be 20 new countries like the Central Asian countries developing, and they will be called uh, Puratistan, and the world will be just fine. Uh, why not? <laughs> And they will be also complicated countries. They will not join NATO EU. They will have probably a future in the Council of Europe, in the OECD, because my whole campaign here is also for the enlargement of the OECD for all the countries which are not in the European Union and the European continent. Because via the OECD, I propose to spread European values globally to Africa, Asia, and also to ex-Russia, ex-China, in case uh, this is materializing. So one more kind of serious question here, you know, um, being conscious of your time, I don't want to keep you away from, from your, uh, your Twitter feed for too long. Uh, <laughs> um, but so you've, uh, you've outlined something you call the, the failing a doctrine. Um, I know it, it, it encompasses some of the things we've discussed earlier, but could you just sort of like briefly describe that as like a sort of a Look, foreign policy worldview or a yes, doctrine? Yes, like yes, yes. So I'm, I'm not Mr. Kissinger and, or Brzezinski, but more or less if in the in the line between Kissinger and Brzezinski, I'm on the Brzezinski line. Yeah. So the idea is Fellinger Doctrine is a little bit of a provocation to my friends who are political scientists and who think I'm not a very serious person because I just tweet, 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 and I don't write books and all these things. So I decided to make the doctrine. Yeah? The doctrine is very simple. Small countries are better than big countries. Yeah? And if big countries are evil, <laughs> it's much better to have smaller, better countries. Yeah. So in a short version, it is exactly what we have done or supported or basically what the Yugoslavian countries have done or what the Soviet countries have done when they decided for freedom, voluntarily or involuntarily, and then we should be ready for that. Because the American doctrine is not to support that. The Americans have not supported the independence of Ukraine. Bush went to Ukraine in 1991 and said, don't vote for independence. James Baker went to Belgrade and to uh, everywhere in the Yugoslavia and said, don't go for independence. Yeah? 
because you are just fine in America. You don't want a mess, <laughs> which you have then to clean up. Okay, fine. Yeah. But these people want freedom like you wanted it and you should support it. So failing a doctrine means, yeah, that you can, if you provide a stable regional integration network, yeah, and that's what we have. We have, of course, the Council of Europe, the Regional Cooperation Council, the Central European Free Trade Agreement, and all these institutions which we built up to help the ex-Yugoslavian country to cooperate. So what is wrong is uh, to have one country like independent and then we don't care for it. Yeah? Like what was wrong was the Libyan case. We went militarily in Libya, <laughs> we changed Gaddafi, and then we didn't care anymore. Complete disaster <laughs> to this day. Very tragic, actually, and very big mistake. So it's much better. And that's, in a way, my proposal. I'm a liberal interventionist. In case of Libya, let's go. Let's intervene. But let's then discuss what is the long-term sustainable format of a state there. Is there a reason why the East hates the West? Yeah? Do they really want to have a state together? Because a state means sharing things, means caring for each other. So they say they didn't want it. <laughs> so I say, let's make free countries out of Libya. Let's help them. Let's integrate them in the African Union, the new states. Let's integrate them in the OECD. Let's make UN missions. Let's invest in the new countries and let's nation build them systematically towards the modern uh, federal market democracies. And that's a much better for these people. But as we see now, the chaos in Libya 10 years on is not good for nobody in the world. Yeah? And then all the bad actors enter. So we have to care for the world. We have to intervene if it's necessary, but then also to make a systematic plan. And Fellinger doctrine is smaller countries are very good if they have a regional integration framework to integrate further. So when we say, for example, Palestine independent, we have to also say what to do with Palestine. <laughs> Should it be an armed country ready to attack any moment Israel? Nobody will allow that. So should it be a neutral country integrated in regional network? Should there be a customs union, a currency pack, a integration network? Should there be a UN mission, et cetera, et cetera? And then we can say, uh-huh, we really contribute to a better world. And that's, in my view, the, what I will now propagate on my Twitter feed, the Fellinger Doctrine. Smaller countries are good. And it's not so shocking because I remind you when the UN was founded in '45. The Americans in San Francisco, you invited 50 countries only. Of course, you didn't invite uh, the Germany and Austria, for example. But, you know, it was 50 countries at the beginning. And now we are almost 200 countries. And it's completely possible that the world will be 300 countries in the UN in whatever, 20 years from now. And it's not a bad thing. Yeah, It's not something America, we must freeze it at 200 because then it's a good number. No, if there is new arrangements for better public good and common good in, um, in the areas of Asia, especially, and in some parts of Africa, then let's work with new countries and let's have more Somalias, more Eritreas, uh, but smaller ones, which then obviously they have less resources to attack their neighbors, <laughs> which is an important consideration. And they have probably better management of their smaller states which is uh, less corruption and uh, better facility. And these new states are carried by their own nation. That's also important that the people then who have this, let's say, uh, let's say Chechenia, the Chechenians really want that state. And then we can take them into responsibility. If we help you, if you want your state, yeah, then let's make it according to good governance standards and uh, let's join the international community and behave decently inside. Yeah? Because the contrary is what we do now. We give to Afghanistan to Talibans and they make a complete disaster. <laughs> and we say, oh, we don't send you money. But the people in Afghanistan are living like in the Middle Ages again. Because we first intervene, but they say, you must be united. There are seven different ethnic groups and religious groups. They all hate each other. They never wanted to be one country. And what we do then, we say, okay, we lost. We take the airplane back home to Washington and we drop the people on the way down. And then we say, uh, we don't send you money. And 20 years later, we have to come back again because it's a complete disaster, obviously, what the Taliban do. And that's uh, not responsible global governance. What I say, failing a doctrine is responsible, but it requires intervention in case needed. And it requires heavy investment into new states. And it requires some kind of intellectual historic debate if countries like Afghanistan should exist. 
And if it would not be much better to have seven new countries instead of Afghanistan, and then, of course, it's also very painful to do it, but it's much better to do it that way. Are there any Western countries that you would like to see sort of fragmented or, or broken up or new countries emerge from? I mean, you know, next door, like a, an independent Bavaria, say, or the part of the U.S. I'm from this in the, no, the northwest no, no, corner. No, they, they advocate you know, sometimes sometimes a Cascadia, they call it with like the western part of Washington and no, Oregon. No, no. But I'm, there, I'm, breaking up Canada. Are there any are there any like Western countries that you would see no, the no. failing a doctrine applied to? No, no, no. Western countries uh, should have federalism because modern democracies should be federalized. Yeah? That means what, for example, also America should do a discussion if you should not do more economic development on the state level <laughs> and also welfare development on the state level. Yeah? And also, uh, for example, the, but America is quite decentralized. To be honest, your cities and your states have a lot of power in terms of many things. Yeah. But, uh, for example, the best example is the United Kingdom. It's one of the most centralized countries still to this day. And the regions they have abolished in England, in England itself. Uh, and, you know, they really do a lot of things centrally. Yeah? And then the cities like Manchester, Birmingham are not working very well because they have no money and they have no kind of responsibility. And this is uh, wrong. So what we need is a debate about federalization of the Western powers, power to the regions, like we do it in Austria. Like we do it in Germany, Bavaria is very successful. Yeah, There's no need for independent Bavaria because Bavaria is very successful. They have gotten, I think, 2 million people more <laughs> in the last uh, 20 years Yeah, because it's jobs, it's uh, economic growth, it's uh, high technology. So they should have more power in Bavaria, and, but also Bavaria should be more, maybe a bit more power to the municipalities. So the idea is basically of my philosophy is, uh, you know, the individual, the family, and then the region, the municipality, we should always have a debate in a democracy how much power you can give to the individual. In America, you give too much. You even arm the individual. <laughs> That's a kind of uh, wrong direction yeah? because you shouldn't have a society where the individual has to provide his own security. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah? But the um, security must be provided by the municipality and by the state authority, via the police and the military and other institutions. So you go, you go too far, <laughs> but we go maybe not. This is a constant balance and negotiation between the individual and the various levels of governance. Yeah? But the breakup is only justified in case of genocide. So here's the difference. Nobody did genocide in Catalonia, but everybody, Milosevic committed genocide in Kosovo. He killed so many people in Kosovo by military means, chasing them out and killing them. And here's the difference. One such a kind of absolute lack of care and uh, crime, criminal activity towards their own population would occur. For example, if um, Washington would, um, whatever, uh, attack California, <laughs> and then, of course, Californian independence would be theoretically uh, very much so that I would argue for it. But it will never happen because you are a federal democracy and you are, have the rule of law. So I don't see any scenario for a realistic scenario for any breakaway or in the West or in the freed countries. But I see very much uh, this for Indonesia, India, Russia, China, and these countries which are basically not able to solve their internal conflicts about resources and power internally in a decent federal democratic way. Well, maybe you should, you know, you said not enough time to write a, a dense political science book like some of your colleagues, but I could see like a, <laughs> I could see like a coffee table book with pictures, like with pictures of your tweets in various places. I think I think you should try to get that on the market um, with Thanks the, a lot, the yeah. doctrine. Yeah, yeah. The, the, in the one podcast of your competitors, it's called Corner Spetty. They featured yeah. my my feed. <laughs> they made a lot of fun about me, <laughs> and I recently discovered it. It was very funny. So yeah, I'm they're my okay friends. Yeah, they're, they're, they're yeah, good really guys. best yeah, regards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll pass that along to them. That's great. <laughs> I couldn't sleep yesterday night. Uh, I was in Skopje, and I was uh, when I discovered it. Somebody sent it to me. Yeah. And I had to laugh uh, for two hours. Yeah, it was really very entertaining. Yeah, they, did a, they did a live show about that with some good, uh, some good notes. Your, uh, your, your, Thanks um, for making your, your NATO. Your NATO is sunscreen uh, swimsuit uh, tweet <laughs> is a is a work of art. I think that needs to be printed and and sold. I think 
you, you could you could fundraise for the the Austrian NATO movement with that. You know, I'm appreciating because at least you know it's very hard for me to get the attention of the media in Austria, and my fringe topics are not so easy. So your interest in this uh, podcast and also your friends is very much helping my case. Thanks a lot for this indirect support. <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, if you have time for just a couple more quick, lighter yes. questions. Um, yes. One is, where do you get all of the flag pins? Because for people who don't follow uh, <laughs> on, on Twitter, your your selfies often come with whatever sort of partnership or relationship you're advocating for. You'll have the exact perfect combination of you know a NATO flag and the national flag or the two national flags to support cooperation. You must have dozens of dozens of different yeah, ones for I almost all please. combinations imaginable. Where do you get I all have, those? I have about 15 of them for Austria, join NATO, for Ukraine. I'm proudest about the one, Ukraine, Kosovo, because these are two countries which have not recognized each other. And I printed already the cross flag pin for my jacket and I ran around. That was cool. So you got that custom made. That was not. Yes, yes, yes. It is a German company online. I Googled it some years ago and I worked with them and it's called Promex. Promex, if I make advertisement, Pro Max, and they are doing this metal pin, uh, this uh, email pins, and it's it's not uh, promax.de, and you can order everything. It's one euro twenty each pin, something like this, and I always order one hundred, and it's enough for the photos, and and it's a it's a cool thing to have because you get some visibility when you go to events. Everybody understands what you want, and I exaggerate with seven of them at the same time at my jacket, so. Yeah, yeah, I think the, the Corner Spade team guys <laughs> joked that you looked like um, Marshall Zhukov of the, the Soviet Union with all the medals. <laughs> yeah, they were not the first one to say that, but it is actually looking like that. Yeah, yeah. I prefer um, you. So that last question before we let you go, and, and maybe the most, uh, the most controversial and heated of all of them, is of the various Balkan countries that you travel to, that being kind of like the start of your career in a lot of ways, is there a favorite cuisine you have? Yeah, okay. That's, of course, in Albania. You know, Albania is by far the most advanced uh, cuisine. And I hope nobody is angry on me, but Albania has a very unique touristic offer for anybody who wants a Mediterranean lifestyle. And uh, they cook very good. And uh, that's, of course, the fish and also the seafood specialities. When you get a plate of very sophisticated crudo fish in Albania, that's probably the number one culinary. It's also not very expensive and it's uh, very decent. And the view is amazing, the Mediterranean atmosphere. And you can make holiday in a country where you do something good for the people as well and uh, use uh, for your budget as well. And so it's a very nice uh, location to visit. But uh, food is actually uh, similar, quite similar in Serbia, Kosovo, Bo uh, Macedonia. There's more this meat culture and uh, the Shopska salad, and it's also very good. They know very good to make their barbecue everywhere in these countries, but the seafood in Albania is by far the most uh, unique and also the attraction. And I hope that one day Albania will be similar like Croatia, a destination for American tourists, where you simply pop over to Dubrovnik, and one day you will pop over to Tirana, Torres, Hopefully, hopefully we get a little better regulation of the tourist prices, because I know you've complained about the cost of the wall <laughs> tour in Dubrovnik. So. Yes, this was one of the things I also do some consumer protection, because I think it's also good. But in reality, they have already a Dubrovnik card, which I got acquainted by this tweet, because people told me, so if you buy a kind of a resident car, not a, a kind of tourist card for a one week holiday, you, all these things are included. And uh, so there's ways around it. and. And you yeah. need to regulate when you have over tourism, you need to make things expensive. Ultimately, it's just, you know, quite shocking. 35 euros for walking on some old stones for one hour is quite a steep that, price. That is remarkable. <laughs> but I appreciate the uh, the Albania tip. I think I've seen some nice pictures of yours at, at, a, at a villa there. I'll have to ask you for your tips, but we'll do that when we're not recording because I, I don't want everyone to get that information. I want to <laughs> go to that nice place by the pool that you posted. It was the best uh, tourist season of Albania in the history, 2023. So it's no longer so secret and I recommend that heavily. Montenegro is also very beautiful. And I did this Dubrovnik to their me trip this summer. And that's something really easy to do and uh, very nice and experience uh, adventure and also fantastic. Well, fantastic well, we can, in addition to your, your tweets, uh, coffee table book, do a travel guide there. I think you've got some, <laughs> you've got some publications in the pipeline. <laughs> 
<laughs> I do a, a podcast on YouTube as well. I have 2000 videos online on my uh, YouTube page yeah. where, I, where I travel. I show it everywhere. Yeah, I was going to close out just by saying, where can people find you? But of course, um, we'll link to your Twitter account and the, the YouTube as well. Um, but any other closing thoughts before we let you go? Look, support Ukraine because everything depends on Ukraine. So please, America, your support is extremely important. Send weapons and send money. And please uh, vote for a president who is for Ukraine in 2024. And Ukraine's EU NATO integration will change the world to a much better, stronger world and you will all benefit from it. Right. The failing of doctrine. We will uh, we'll get back to you, see how much of it's implemented in the next couple of years. 2024. And, uh, and, have, to, and have, to touch, have to touch base after that. So, uh, Gunter Fehlinger, thanks so much for coming on Spaßbremse. You are welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And see you in Berlin at the live show at PodFest Berlin on October 14th. Tschüss.